Hey, it's David, and welcome back to the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. We've got Renee Izquierdo on the show today, one of our favorite Tone Bass artists, and I think he may have the most online lessons on the Tone Bass platform out of all the artists. So if you're still not a member, head on over to ToneBase.co, use the promo code PODCAST-3 for $15 off your subscription, and unlock hundreds of lessons, including those with Renee Izquierdo on the Brower Simple Studies. I had a great conversation talking about Renee's escape from Cuba, originally to Miami and then moving up to New Haven, Connecticut to study with Ben Verdi at the Yale School of Music. We also talked about his uh, teaching philosophy and the importance of studying etudes, along with his approaches to transcribing music, including his own arrangement that he made of WC's Arabesque Number no. 1. Let's jump right into things. Here's a beautiful tune titled Guajira Abi Madre.
have the Brower Etudes uh, been a part of your repertoire? Were these kind of building blocks uh, to your technical foundations when you're just starting off with the guitar? Actually, surprisingly, some of them, uh, but not as, uh, as much as I thought. They, in my, in my education in Cuba, they focus more on the on Sor, Aguado, um, Cost, Etudes, Okay. And of course, we did some Brower too, but like I realized later on how much more um, first, well, modern now, like sounding, more contemporary sounding, easier to engage and, and very rhythmical um, in, in, I think, pretty much all of the cases. Um, so developing, developing a good technique um, uh, and a good rhythm sec- sense, which is um, something that it's a lot easier to not notice when you're playing uh, the classics, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, the 1800 repertoire. So uh, I, I, I actually do include it in my first semester uh, teaching. They all need to do, you know, if they cannot get to all 20 Brower, at least I give them like a, a good chunk of what I think they need that will relate, especially because they are all, many of them are heavy, heavy on the thumb, you know, and, and thumb is always an issue. So to balance yeah, the, yeah. the right hand. So uh, I find them very useful. And when um, you're saying giving these uh, to your uh, students, this is at a uh, university of Wisconsin, yes. Milwaukee. Is this to both your undergrads and graduate students, or does it, or is it yeah. everybody? Uh, yeah, actually, well, um, my my grads too. Depending how they come in and what they what they need and what um, you know, what blank spots. What when they come in, I try to see where they are at. Then we discuss a plan of what I want them to be at and a timeline and how. So if they have issues with thumb damping, I say, okay, let's gonna go this etude, number 23 by cost. And then if you have this issue with the speed, we can do a wallow, short burst scales, like I don't remember if it's number 16 and like last year, blah, 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 blah. so, blah, blah, blah. so yeah. um, I mix it up depending on what they need. It's not that they come in and they okay, you gotta do all Brower etudes. Uh, some people would need just a few of them. Some others would need more. It, it depending. It, uh, what you know, what I want to create in the first semester usually is um, a clarity on the idea of what I want from the student, where they are at, and what I want them to be at the end of the first semester. So they could create some freedom of, of performance. You know, because everybody comes from such a different background. Yeah. So, of schools and thoughts and, and uh, I guess I could say you could say that I'm a little bit more at the first semester technically driven, you mm-hmm. know, to make things that things uh, to make sure that things are working, and then we go heavier into repertoire. Yeah, it must be great to have such a um, clear game plan or outline right from the start, because uh, definitely a lot of teachers you just bring in different repertoire and work on it, which is great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, uh, but I think many, many students, especially at the um, undergrad and master's level, it, it's good to have a more clearly uh, directed uh, movement of development. I totally agree with you. Like I um, I actually do it because it wasn't done to me either. <laughs> 
I thought, okay, I need to have some clear structure so they, they see a little bit better, that they can assess how they're doing as well, you know. So uh, I, I think it's been very helpful for the students to have um, that guideline. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because they know that I will move forward until they get this skill, that skill. And it, it wasn't done with me. Like, usually the way it went, just we just play, bring repertoire, they see it, they say, okay, that's great, you know, let's do now what other piece you want to work. And it's kind of like a combination in between um, repertoire that they want me to work out, my, my previous teachers, my previous teachers, uh, and repertoire that I would like to do as well. But, you know, sometimes depending on where you are with the guitar, you don't necessarily have a, a, a grasp of, of what's useful for you versus what you want to do. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a tricky balance, you know. But assuming that the people, when they come to you at the graduate and undergraduate level, they already want to be a professional guitarist, or at least they intend to. Yeah. Then I think we need to take the, the game up a notch and say, okay, if you want to be a classical guitarist, then we have these issues and we need to take care of that so you can be able to perform freely. Uh, because of course we we need to teach um, musicianship through repertoire as well, but you can do it with etudes. And especially think about the Brower etudes in particular. I mean, each one of them have such a clear, both technical and musical technique uh, to them. But they are such musical pieces, and I, I've heard them programmed many times in. Um, classical concerts from professional musicians at festivals, including the GFA. They're just wonderful pieces to work on. So that definitely makes it a little more uh, pleasing and pleasant for the student. I remember I remember the first time I heard them all in concert was the first time played by Alvaro Pierri when he went to Havana Guitar Festival. I can't yeah. remember the year. But, uh, you know, we are, as Cubans, most of us were, like, so skeptical. It's like, oh, he's playing the Brower Etudes? Yeah, you know, <laughs> and then he played them, and he, of course, was unbelievably musical and beautiful, and it just, I think, made me, and definitely made all of many of the Cuban people that were there, guitarists, made us realize that how can this music, how would we downplaying a little bit the the ability to perform it in concert, you know, as a concert repertoire. Yeah, it, it was. Uh... For me, when I heard them, it was Dale Cavanaugh, and she played the first 10. Uh, and she was headlining a GFA concert. And kind of similar thing to you. I, I was kind of surprised and really not expecting much. Uh, just thinking, oh, Broward Simple Studies for a concert like this. But it was my favorite part of the program, I think. It was just beautiful. They're great pieces. So um, I, I've got to ask, have you worked with Leo Brower yourself? Yes, of course. You know, uh, Leo, when, when he was in Cuba... Well, when I was in Cuba, I left Cuba in 1995. Um, he was still very busy with Cordoba conducting the, the orchestra there in Spain. So he would come to Cuba very sporadically. So we cannot say uh, that he was my teacher, you know, because he uh -huh. was. I, I started with Jesus Ortega, with Marta Cuervo, Fernando Lopez Bello, with Manuel um, Carlos Molina in Miami, uh, but and Ben Berdry at Yale. Olivier Chassan, <laughs> going through all the teachers. <laughs> Olivier Chassan in Paris and, and Roland Dians as well. So, Great. but um, when he would come, 
will have this type of masterclass settings. And you will perform, and he will tell you, and then, you know, it will be a whole, like, lecture slash class. But sometimes you have one-on-one -on -one lessons with him. Um, you know, it, it will vary it depending okay. of, of his availability. And, and as you can imagine, every time he came back to Cuba, you know, it was for a very short, brief per uh, period of time, and then he was out again. Yeah. So uh, he was very high in demand. So his time was very, very precious. And, you know, whatever lesson, if you were managed to get a lesson, uh, it was a great, great experience. You know, Would you study just his own repertoire? Or were you studying other Cuban repertoire or a little bit of everything? What did you work a, a, with? A, a little bit of everything. I remember okay. I remember doing a while of Rondo too for him. And of course, some of his uh, Black Decameron. Uh, yeah. I, I did the Canticum. Uh, I cannot remember. It's so long ago already. Uh, yeah, that's what comes to mind now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was a great ah Elegiaco concerto too. I did Elegiaco concerto. Oh great. Yeah, it's a good so, piece as well. I know. It's too too bad that it's not played more often. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The one I really love in particular is uh Toronto concerto. Yes, it's yes. just I've never heard it live or heard of people performing it in recent years. I think it's just partly it's such a difficult piece, not only for the <laughs> soloist, but the, yes. the chamber orchestra. Uh but it it's uh it always shocks me how many not just from Brower but just all composers how many solo guitar concertos there are outside of Aranjuez there's a huge scope of the repertoire when you think yeah, it yeah. through Absolutely Yeah and, and and well unfortunately the orchestra has always had to go with with the numbers what put people on the seats Yep so most of the time they're just thinking of Aranjuez Fantasia para un gentil hombre Tedesco Ponce just the classics, you know. Yeah. Giuliani, too, actually gets played. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that a couple of times. And they're great pieces. I don't mean to throw them down the bus. And I absolutely love Aranjuez, and it's extraordinarily popular for a reason. Uh, but it, it's, uh, I've only heard one of the, maybe we could say, non-traditional uh, concerto programming. I, I think it was the Brower. So you were studying in Cuba, did you study your undergraduate degree there as well before coming to the U.S.? Yes, that's correct. I was I was studying my undergraduate as well, and then I left when I was um, twenty years old, June 9, nineteen ninety five. I escaped Cuba and, and came to the United States and landed in Miami, where my uh, family that left in the 1980s was living and I could get some support and, and be, you know, allow me to start up my, my life in the United States, my new chapter. Yeah. So um, it was, uh, it was a difficult time, you know, as an immigrant, all of a sudden I came to the United States. I remember June 9, 1995, around 8 PM, I landed in the United States and that was a Friday. And already on Tuesday or Monday or Tuesday of the next week, I was already working in a warehouse, uh, a company called Future Tech International hmm. that was located by, by the Miami International Airport. Was just, you know, I was working on the receiving, on the loading or loading uh, department. Just pretty much, you know, I learned how to drive a forklift, like put pallets together, stock them. 
you know, do all kind yeah. of things that I hope I never have to use again. But, <laughs> you know, at the beginning, it was it was difficult, you know, because yeah. every time I said to someone, oh, I'm playing classical guitar, people who look at me, you know, the majority of the people that have been living there forever in Miami and Cuban immigrants as well, and they would look at me like, oh, man, you're dreaming. You're going to be stuck in pallets here until you decide to go to somewhere else. And then I, I, I was a little bit disheartened. At, at first and then I said well you know what I know this is not going to be forever let me make the best out of this situation instead of feeling bitter let me see if I can what I can what can I learn from this experience what can I so I learned how to I, I didn't have a driver's license obviously I didn't have a car in Cuba so I learned to drive first a forklift before I even attempted to to drive a vehicle so wow. and 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 learn a few things about data entry and computer and, and how to like put chips onto motherboards because we were working on the heat, you know, and in Miami is 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 brutal as you can yeah, imagine. Yeah, and humid so as well. When, yeah, exactly. So when you were getting in, into the the the, the trucks uh, on the back of the truck to stock, when you got to the part of the sun that, of the truck that was heated by the sun that was not inside, man, that was like a, an oven in there. So mm. it was a great break when we get to work in the air conditioning and put some microchips into the into the motherboards. So <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Wow, it was, it was it was no well you know it it was but um, it, it was what I had to do and then I just came and I remember you know uh, I used to do a lot of overtime because I needed to make more money. I remember when I gave my first check, my salary was, I think, like six fifty an hour. Mm-hmm. And, and my first check, every it was every 15 days. It was like $350 after yeah. taxes and all that. And I thought it was so much money. <laughs> <laughs> and then in two seconds, all disappeared from my hand. I was like, oh, my. Okay, I see how things work here. You yeah, know, yeah, because, it could go by pretty quickly in the states. Yeah, my 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 aunt took me to a store. So, okay, let's buy something for your mother, and let's buy something for that, and then something for you, and then before I knew it, I had no money. So <laughs> you know, it was it was it was a, a stark reality because it, you know it's it's a hard job, and it made me realize actually how um, so much on demand these jobs are, and yet how many people don't want to do it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, because it's a harder, harder way of making a living, as well as construction and everything else. You know, so every time I pass by and see workers outside, my heart goes for them. You know, because you know that that, that is not a an easy life. Absolutely, yeah. and someone, somebody still has to. But something, do that someone job. exactly, yeah. someone has to do it exactly. So you know, like somebody has to pick strawberries. Somebody has to do all the things that, like you know. Uh, that are not easy to do but necessary. The the hard thing about doing that type of job is when you have an education and then you understand where you are in that frame and and and, and that type of situation can be a little bit like pulling you down, you know, in the sense of I shouldn't be doing this, I should be doing something else. But then when you get over that, in my case, when I got over that and said, let me make the best of it because I understand that this situation is temporary. Then I, I think I became happier <laughs> too. You yeah. know, my job I was doing it willingly, and sure enough, after I did it for a certain amount of time, then I found out I got my footing in, down in Miami, and I started like uh, um, I went to 
take some English classes and, and uh, Florida International University includes music classes. I started taking guitar up with Carlos Molina, who lent me a guitar. I, I had no instrument, like whatsoever. Wow. I didn't play guitar almost for, for a year and a half, you know. Did you keep the nails during that period? No. <laughs> I, 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 lost, I lost my fingerprints, actually. During wow. that period, because when you're carrying boxes, you yeah, know, yeah, all the calluses, the, the 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 fingerprints kind of like wear out, and then I I I lost them. Wow! I remember when I went to audition at Yale University. I I I, I got this guitar from Molina, this Pablo Quintana solo guitar, which is a key on the tier that was living in Fort Myers, Florida, and I remember putting my hands in warm water to soften them, and then putting cream. And it was very, very difficult. That part was like kind of brutal. When I started trying to play back, yeah. And then, then when I went to, I went to see. I actually didn't have a formal audition at Yale. It was a funny. <laughs> it was a funny thing. Thank you, Ben Berger, if you're listening. <laughs> He for, might for, be. For, We've had for, him before. <laughs> yeah, I know. For the leap of faith. So what happened is like, Carlos Rafael Rivera, this friend of mine, uh, the composer, yeah, uh, the. Um, that is living now in Miami. He He's from Miami. His father is Cuban. His mother is Guatemalan. So, you know, we were friends. I met him at FIU. And then um, John Klein, another composer uh, that was in FIU with us, he, he came in 1996 uh, to Yale University. He auditioned and he got in Yale. So uh, at Yale, and then... Uh, Carlos Rivera was auditioning in Harvard School of Music. Uh, he was auditioning at Yale, and he was auditioning at Juilliard, as well as USC. So he he ended up going to USC, but he told me, like, just come with me, you know, come with me and, and, and just take the trip and see and meet the guitar professor there. And I knew Ben Berger already from Cuba. I heard him before, and I was just like, oh, you know, it would be a great opportunity to see him again because he went to Havana Guitar Festival and I saw him performing there. So I went there and just, we stayed with your client's house. Uh, Carlos, this is audition. And then I happened to go there and, and to meet Ben and we talked and he told me, what can you play? And I said, not much now because my hands, I told him the story pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and then he, I remember playing a little bit of the Black Decameron and then, After that, he walked with me down to the um, to the office and said, "Okay, what can we do to have this kid here?" Wow! And and that was my beginning of of a professional guitar career, well, studies at, in the United States. So that so was it, kind of the turning point for you since you was. moved into the U.S. Yeah, it was because I was pretty much disconnected with music altogether, and I knew that I had to come back. Um, Uh, any other career at that point would have been, I would have to start as a freshman, you know, again. Yeah. And then with this, I could already enter in a master's. With yeah, guitar. yeah. So it, it, it just made sense to save four years of my life and and move forward. But I was considered all the possibilities of, of other careers. Yeah, I, yeah. I was, I was doing a double major in philology and, wow. and, and music in Cuba. But I, and, you know, Uh, I would have had to, for philology, I would have to start all over again in the United States because the credits and the loads and the, they don't transfer the, over. The whole, they don't transfer over. So, but guitar is international. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Music <laughs> is international. So, um, I became a professional musician. 
here. Yeah. You know. So it it was a it was a uh, intense moment in my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So how long was it when you since you moved to Miami and you were... Ni- ni- 1995, I arrived. You 1995 in Miami, and then I left uh-huh. Miami in um, August 1997 to go to study at Yale already wow. after I got the admissions and all that. So it was a long period of yeah. working. I was learning English, and my English was rough. rough. I didn't remember, you know how I, you know, I took just a couple classes at FIU, but I couldn't afford them, so I couldn't be like there in all the time. So I just learned TV. Uh, I I just learned English watching uh, TV with the captions on. Oh, know, that's I, a good way to do it. Yeah, I, I remember listening to Cheers and all these shows, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then just looking looking at the captions and be completely lost. Yeah, and, uh, my first movie, I think it was Batman, the Riddler or something. That was what it was. Nineteen ninety five. I was blown away by the stereo and the effects and everything in there. But I remember not understanding anything. I was absolutely yeah. so, so lost. I have it was no cool, idea. But... It was cool, but I was completely clueless about oh, my cousin man. took me to the theater. And I was just, and then after that, they took me to a drive-thru to see my face, you know, that I can order food from a car, you know, things like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then after I finished at Yale, I, I finished my master's degree there. And then they asked me to go um, to Paris to do an exchange program with Paris Conservatoire, in which I studied there with Olivier Chassin, Alberto Pons, and Roland was not teaching there yet. He was teaching at Ecole Normale, but I worked okay. in there as well. So, uh, and that was my artist diploma. So I did like six months and, and Paris, and then I came and to the United States, to Yale, and finished the rest of the degree there. So I finished the artist diploma in one year. Okay. So when you restarted guitar, maybe for lack of better term, did you find you had to rebuild the technique that you developed through your undergrad? Did it take a while or did things kind of come back to you quite uh, naturally and quickly? Actually, uh, it, um, it took, they came back faster than I thought they would be. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I actually, it actually gave me an opportunity to rethink guitar again. Hmm. So I, I just restructured my, because I knew things that I was lacking before. And I said, okay, this is an excellent time to like rebuild. Yeah. And then, so I rethought my technique and, and I started think, changing many, many, many things around, like regarding weight transfer, relaxation, you know, right hand attack, everything, positioning, you know. I, I started question because all of a sudden I had a lot of access to information that otherwise you need to realize in Cuba the information came for guitar besides your teacher it came every two years when they did the Havana Guitar Festival so that we got an input of information and then we had two years to digest it and then yeah. next festival came in and then you, you try to absorb as much as you can so in the same token I, this was an excellent opportunity for me to rethink back and, and 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 see how I can up my game now that I was really becoming a master of music in, in classical guitar. Yeah, you know? yeah. Was the Havana Festival, was that a week-long festival or what was the structure out there? Um, it was, you know what, it's so vague now in my memory. I would like to say that it was a week-long, at least four or five days. Okay. You know, 
kind of uh, I I know it was not a weekend. It was a, a longer a longer thing. Okay. So I I, I would say about five to six days long full of master classes and concerts and lectures all kind of things because of the figure of leo he he brought many great players um to teach in cuba and to play and you know that was our our input of of you know information so when i came to the united states a lot of things at yale university you as you can imagine <laughs> the world is at your fingertips about the things that you can find and the readings that you can do yeah. you know on technique and you know development that we were far behind you know because we always got it through a, a, a third source when it get to cuba you know yeah yeah so uh, yeah so I, I i got as informed as i could and, and tried to you know improve my playing and i'd done that three times in my life when i was 18 years old then when i was um 22 years old when I started at Yale, and then when I was 35, in which I really tried to see, okay, what's working, what's not, and let me see how I can rethink uh, the way I'm playing. And when you were 35, that was just assessing it by yourself with the knowledge you had yeah. harnessed over the yeah. years, yeah? Yeah, and now, and now I'm about to hit, I feel I'm about to hit another benchmark in which I will have, <laughs> it's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. Like, the fourth one's coming. Well, I, I yeah. just started uh, Game of Thrones the other day, and uh, you know, winter's coming, and the fourth <laughs> milestone's coming. No. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's great to hear because I feel so many guitarists, and probably myself included, we just get used to a certain way of playing, and we don't stand on our tippy toes reassessing everything we're doing, both musically and technically speaking. It's easy to kind of fall into this loop and this cycle of just doing the same thing over and over again. And sometimes it's great. That sometimes it's doing maybe not physical harm, but musical harm limiting you. So it's, uh, it, it sounds like with your students, you know, when you're kind of reassessing and making these clear goals right from the start when they come in, even for a master's degree, you really try to find the best, both technically and musically, out of each student and yourself, which I, I think is just fantastic. Or people need to be doing that. First of all, like and all of my students, they all play differently. Yeah, I mean, I don't try to fit everything into my box of what I feel my comfort zone. You know, I don't try to bring it into my comfort zones. Rather, try to explore out and say, okay, this is the way you want to play. This is what works. This is what doesn't. The pros and cons with your of your position. What I see on the short term, what I see on the long term, that me, and then let them make the decision and, and fine tune, uh, little by little you know, until you find home. So generally what I hear, what I feel that, and I tell them like all of the things that we're talking in your first semester, you will feel the results ingrained in your plane like three semesters from now, by the time you are the like, second semester, uh, second year, second semester master on your you know, fourth semester of the career. Yeah. And, and even, and the benefit will be farther even after you actually left, you know, because things will come into fruition you know it takes time for absorption understanding absorption and then repl replication of the concept you know be able to like put it back out there yeah and and it's it has all true you know so far with many of the students you know even when they come already in a very good uh, standing you know playing very well i said okay you know i noticed that i see what you got that's excellent so now let's see what you don't have 
And then also I discuss with them, like the first thing I ask them is like, okay, what do you see? What do you want? You know, and and then like, uh, what do you want to do? Direction, direction of your plane, what kind of things you think is stronger, that you're stronger at, what you think you're weak at. So we can create some kind of balance. And, and a lot of people, surprisingly, they will say, okay, I want you to be forthcoming and tell me the truth. But... <laughs> Usually, you know, it's, it doesn't work necessarily that way. When I was a, a studying teaching, you know, I wanted to say so much, you know, I would tell the students everything I heard in, a, in every single section. And then yeah. when they, they will come back and they will have a fraction and not even, it was like so little, they would bring me back. And I was like, puzzle, how come? I told you exactly what's happening here. I told you what I need you to do, how to practice it, why it's not happening. And then I realized with, with time, obviously, that I used, was overwhelming them with information. It was too much output. And rather, instead of like creating a sequence of what I wanted to do and focus on, it was too much. And they, they were having a hard time knowing where to start. Okay, so I have all these issues. Where do I begin now? You know, how do I uh, structure this, my practice time so I can address these things? You know? And it took me a long time as a, as a teacher to develop the understanding of where the student is at and what they need to hear first, you know, so they don't get overwhelmed and it feels like a positive progression all the time. And yeah. trust me, I get a lot of pushback when they come and they're already winning competitions and they're playing well. And then all of a sudden I said, okay, how well we're going to do some sore attitudes or some cost or something, you know, and they're like, oh, why? And then, <laughs> you know, I, trust me, you know, and, it holds true. The people that I kind of like give, gave him a little bit and was not strong enough to follow through with my concept of what, the way I think we should structure the, their teaching, they always kept up developing the same problems throughout. Yeah. You know, so, and then like, and some, you know, some very good winning competition people, uh, some of them that are listening out there, you know who you are <laughs> and to get to your attitudes. So, you know, so Bust out the cost and the sore again. <laughs> exactly. Go back and look at the things. So every time I kind of like gave him a little bit, I said, okay, let's go. Sure. You don't want to do this. Let's, let's play whatever you want to play. It always backfired. Yeah. You know, and at the end I had to do a lot more work by restructuring things within the pieces. Yeah. You know, it there. Which is when you're doing an etude, it's a, a shorter period, I mean, shorter time length piece. It's more focused into a specific difficulty. It's easier to break down and for you to understand. You know, I, I, I can totally relate with students who don't want to necessarily jump back into these etudes. I definitely remember when I was in later high school and early college, uh, for my undergrad, you know, I just really wanted to do all these pieces that were far beyond my technical development at the time. And it was frustrating when I... I remember you were, play, you were playing the Vagatels. Yeah, you? I was playing. Yep, that was the piece that was in <laughs> my mind. You should have told me something. I would have trusted you. But you know, but it's a little difficult to like tell to someone, 
especially when they come from masterclass for only one time. Yeah. It's, to tell, it's okay, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be playing this. You know yeah. because because you need to follow up with that. Yeah. So it's a lot harder to in a masterclass to drop a bump like that and say the reasons why not and then <laughs> and I, you know and then just walk away. You cannot do that. Well, it's so funny you bring it up because in the first episode of this season we had Ian Watt and he was talking about a masterclass he had with Daniello Desiderio. And I forgot what he played, but it was a fairly complex piece. And he was quite young. I think he was 16 or 17, you know, so still developing as a musician. And Daniello, you know, he seems like a very, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the way Ian worded it, but he's very dedicated and interested teacher in the students yes. as a player. He asked... Ian, what do you want to work on next? Or what are you going to work on? And Ian said, I'm going to do the Walton Bagatelles. And, and he just shook his head and said, you know, you should play some Giuliani. And Ian was talking about how he was just totally crushed. And him being kind of, I'm sure he wasn't an arrogant teenager at all. But he was joking around saying, well, the arrogant teenager I was. You know, I decided to uh, say no to Adiello and played the Walton. And he says he regrets that to this day. It definitely would have been extraordinarily helpful to have maybe gone through more of the Giuliani, but anyway, I'm rambling now, but it's, uh, no, 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 it's a, it's a good, I mean, Ian is a great player. So I he's some, a great player. Yeah. Something worked out. <laughs> yeah. So it worked out for him, but I will say for my experience, because of kind of, you know, I, I try not to have regrets in life and I don't really regret it. Cause I absolutely love those pieces and still love those pieces and had a blast learning them. But it did make me, in a sense, take a step technically backwards, ironically, instead of forwards, because then you run into these problems or you're you're adding to the problems of your technique instead of sitting down and fixing them. So my first couple, my first year of undergrad, it was totally reworking and fixing my right hand. I, I didn't have a ton of tension, but I definitely had enough tension where if I would continue playing like that, I would have ran into some serious issues. And then... Uh, so my teacher at the time, Bill Kanegeiser, he's great with relaxation and all that with your right hand. He's very thorough and yeah. very, very structured in his teaching. Yeah. And I am so thankful for it. And, you know, when I first sat down and I forgot, I think it was Sonata Romantica, just some piece that was too hard for me at the time. Again, you know, Bill was like, how about we work on some Milano fantasies? And I remember walking out of that lesson thinking, oh, I, I can't believe this. I'm here in college and I have to work on these stupid, simple little pieces. But I'm still to this day extraordinarily thankful that I did that. And, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, have, I'm rethinking everything in regards to my playing to the extent that you have done three and maybe coming up on the fourth time. But during this time of social distancing, I've actually slowly kind of been going through these study cycles and everything. And it's just so helpful. And I find the more advanced of a player you become, it's, I, once you pass a certain threshold, of course, I find going back to these E18s are even more Absolutely. technically beneficial than they might've been, you know, because, five years be, ago. Because you notice a lot more stuff. Yeah. You know, you, you start understanding the complexity, you know, it's, it's a similar example, for example, a lot of people usually ask me, what do you like? Uh, what kind of composer do you like? You know, so uh, when I was growing up, I thought um, Mozart to be very, you know, simple. You know, like in compared to Beethoven or, you know, all the romantic composers. But as older as I get, 
I started realizing the, the genius of, of Mozart as a composer and how in the, it, precisely what makes it difficult is that like clarity on the, on the, on the line and, and the way he structured the harmonization of everything. It's, it's just quite remarkable. So in the simplicity is the beauty that I was like just trying to uh, search for something a little bit more heavy, like Beethoven sonatas, you know. And and then when you when you're looking at something like Mozart, it's so so crystalline, so so transparent, you know. And and it's it's a complete different level of difficulty, you know. Like you know, right now I am looking at, at more simpler pieces, and and I I see wonder like how could I how did I not see that the beauty in it and the, uh, con- the excellent contribution into my playing that they will have yeah. you know uh, so it is it is a wonderful expert uh, and then of course every time the students are learning pieces I kind of play along with them sometimes so it helps me also <laughs> uh, get back in touch with, with that repertoire it's it's always amazes me and my teaching experience is so limited compared to yours, but it always amazes me how much we can learn as a performer while teaching. You know, it's a, it's a win-win situation, it seems, for everybody. Well, you need to verbalize what you yeah. thought about, what you're thinking, and how you're going to uh, uh, to make it work for the student. And, and more importantly, not only verbalize it, but on this, making sure that the student understands it. So when you need to go through that thought processes, then it actually ingrains and it actually puts in question, into question, many of the things that you thought uh, you already had a handle upon. I'm sure some of our listeners have heard you perform this arrangement uh, that you made yourself of Debussy's Arabesque uh, Number One, of course, originally for a piano and on guitar. It just sounds amazing on the guitar the way you play it. How, what was your approach to this transcription? Well, I have to like I already mentioned this a couple of times before um, in, in other interviews. Um, I I cannot take credit for that arrangement. Um, and the the I am um, I cannot remember. Nineteen ninety six or nineteen ninety seven. Eduardo Baranzano, uh, um, Uruguayan, I think he's Uruguayan. Yes, Uruguayan guitarist. He played in the final of the Havana International Guitar Competition. I was young and I was sitting in the audience, and I was awestruck with that uh, because I love. Um, Impressionist music and Debussy really he close home. Um, so when he um, played, you know, I think he won third in that competition or something. I cannot recall. Um, it, I was awestruck and I tried to find the music everywhere to learn and I couldn't. There was no no possible way um, because probably it was not written or or it was not available tried mm-hmm. to reach him and there was no possible way so what i did is i started thinking backing up and it just started the whole transcription on my part i started from the harmonics at the end that i could see i i, I heard um, i realized that i could do the whole passage with the harmonics you know and then that's like, oh this works well because then you have that whole register on the octave upper octave coming down you know, you unfortunately cannot do the eighth notes underneath, but at least it gives the effect of the harmonics transitioning into the theme again on, yeah. on the middle register. And then uh, and then I started expanding, working a little bit, a little bit at a part, look at the piano part, 
and I, and then I wrote the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I pretty much uh, did it. Uh, I also listened to there was an old version. I think I want to say Julian Brim playing uh, like a like a little easier version of it. Uh, I, okay. I cannot remember what recall. Somebody gave me the the recording in Cuba, and it was in a tape. You know, one of those that you need to rewind with a pencil. Oh, okay, the good old uh, cassette. Cassette, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, cassettes are making a bit of a comeback, ironically, right now. Is that right? <laughs> it's analog sound it sounds warmer. It's just the same as the LP idea. <laughs> yeah, oh. although although I I think uh, cassettes don't sound. No, nice. No. <laughs> I, I I get the rec- I get the vinyl argument. I think the the cassette is more of a hipster movement with some uh, PBR. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, so you got this tape. So I I, I got and I started like lo- listening to what can I do, what I could do. I tried to do it on the original key of E major, but it was a little too high. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I was considering, okay, what can I do there? Because I, right now I have it, it's done in D major, which I believe it may be exactly what Baronzano did, but I cannot recall. I mean, I only heard it once, live, when I was 14 years old. Oh, yeah. You know, so, and I'm, I'm no Mozart, I tell you that. It's not like I could go home and write the whole thing, like, yeah. here, you know? <laughs> so I, I don't think there will ever be another Mozart uh, yeah. like that. <laughs> so, I, I, you know. I don't have such abilities, so I just it took me a while just to get around, like you know, if it was even possible. And then you know, it developed into what right now I think is a version, my version of that of that arrangement. And um, and still, you know, who also helped me a lot with it that was Roland. Roland gave me some good suggestions or some things. So uh, yeah. uh, of, of you know he was a master arranger, so he gave Absolutely. me some great ideas of of register wise what to do and how to change some of the voicings to make it more guitaristic. And now teaching it to Jeram, I I see even further some of all the things that can be done to be improved to make it a little bit more guitaristic because the thing is 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 very labor intensive, and it doesn't sound that the the main difficulty in that piece is. To make it sound as innocent, as transparent, and, and beautiful as it's on the piano, and not heavy. Yeah, you know, when you have that eighth note versus triplet on the top, that tickle dum ping, the getting pump. That's very difficult to make it flow, just like in the piano. So it it takes blood, actually, you know. Yeah, and, and it's, <laughs> it's so much work, and also it was a combination. I played it in some places, and some musicians. Some guitarists in particular, they didn't like it at all. And some others will love it. So it was always on the fence of like, you know, is there something that is worth pursuing further? And, you know, but, you know, I as, as I kept with it. And, yeah. and then like right now, I mean, I barely played like the other day. I, I haven't, I played it on the podcast because someone requested it and I haven't played that piece in forever, but. But I remember enough that I can bring it back fairly, yeah, fairly easy. But then I realized now, looking at a bit back, like some of the things about flow that that needs to happen. Because my idea in an arrangement is like it cannot be a it cannot be a loose loose situation. What does it mean? Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, that it, the piece has to gain something, you know. And with the forgiveness of the pianists out there. Um, the guitar has a lot more 
clear differences in color and things that actually can add to that style of music. I remember listening to Isao Tomita, which is an um, electronic music uh, composer slash arrangement performer. I think he did a, um, he has a version of the, of the Arabesque number one in which he's changed all these colors that is absolutely beautiful. You know, he makes all these hmm. electronic uh, sounds with it, um, textures with it, that is uh, quite, quite elegant. And I remember, wow, the guitar can actually be more similar to this, all these kind of colors than a piano will ever do in that sense. So perhaps, yeah. perhaps we lose a little bit on the flow that the piano, because in the piano, that's a simpler piece. It's not a difficult, a terribly difficult piece to play. Yeah. So in the piano has that lightness of it. And then, uh, but in the guitar, we can add colors. So we lose a little bit of lightness, but we add colors. You know, the same, for example, when I hear, and I, again, I heard many good interpretations of that, but when I hear the valses poeticos by Granados, when you hear those arrangements in the piano, it's so, in the piano, it's so uh, uh, light. You know, and playful, and, and, playful. Yeah. and in the guitar, it sometimes sounds so heavy because it's very hard to to achieve. So, and you know, again, it's doable, and we can, we definitely can can keep playing it. But there are some things that are sometimes I, I think are like, well, I, if it doesn't gain something, then it's a lot of, a, a lot harder to to sell it because the people when they hear. And I don't mean guitarists, because guitarists, when they hear you play that repertoire, they all like kind of amazed to some degree that it's possible to do it in yeah. one single instrument. But when you stop listening to that and, and, and cease to be amazed and start listening to what actually is coming out. The actual music. The actual music. <laughs> then you hear some, you know, if a pianist would be listening to me playing the arabesque, they'd be like, ah, <laughs> why? You know, yeah. you know, why do you want to do that? Just play guitar music, you know, that fit your <laughs> instrument better. You know what I mean? And again, I have had pianists that actually love it. And I have others that say like, oh, I don't care for it. And I could understand, yeah, I could understand that. Well, I really like how you find the qualities that are special with your instrument, the guitar, and how that can add instead of take away from the arrangement of the original piece. Our instrument, whether we like it or not, is, uh, is, is a small sound and it's more intimate. It's a more a saloon of a saloon concert instrument. Right now, yeah. the 20th century, with all the capabilities of amplification, that things have helped us a great deal. But before, it was uh, always, uh, it was much more of a saloon instrument. You know? yeah. And we thank Segovia with all our heart to for all what he did to bring the guitar to that level, you know, and but there are things that the guitar sounds better better at. And, you know, I remember, you know, I remember when I wanted to record my first CD that I was doing all this, you know, core repertoire, Rodrigo, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember Jorge Morel, you know, when I was living in New York, Jorge Morel lived mm -hmm. in Queens, in Astorga, Queens. And we used to go every Saturday night, a few guitarists and a few of, of his friends, and we'd have this little tertulia of this little uh, playing, you know, how do you call that in English, a tertulia? Uh, like get-togethers, you know? Okay. And we would all play for each other and drink wine, and he would cook, and da, da, da. And then I was just thinking, okay, you know, I, I want to record my first CD, and then and I started playing all that repertoire, and then Jorge Mora told me, well, you know, 
Okay, how many people have already recorded that music? What do you think? And then the, my immediate answer is like, well, a lot, but I have something different to say. And he said, okay, I understand you. You will have something different to say, but like, you know, the, the variety and the, there's so much you can change without like going in a tangent and, and doing things completely non-musical uh, or anti-musical just for the sake of being different, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. in order to sound uh, like you, there were some, some decisions that were taken prior to your performance by other great guitarists that are musically appealing. And that's a there, there's a reason why it was done that way, you know? So I said, like, I will just try to do arrangements and try to like record music that is not heard as much. And, and for example, something that you could identify more, like for example, Cuban music. And that's why the whole concept of the Cuban CD came about. Yeah. Because of, believe it or not, in Cuba, I, I barely play Cuban music. I mostly play all the classics, you know? <laughs> so all of a sudden when I came to the United States, I see myself, and this all started with uh, Elio Fisk in 1997, the um, uh, his festival, the NEC, the what's the name, the Boston Guitar Fest. Uh, mm-hmm. He he was uh, the theme of the Boston Guitar Fest that year was Cuba, and then he invited Joaquin Clerch and me to play a concert. And then all of a sudden he asked me like, "Can you do a a, a concert with uh, of all Cuban music?" I was like, "Oh my." I mean, and he didn't want to have Brower, uh, the Cameron, and like that. He wanted to have a little bit more traditional type music. Not only traditional, but a little bit lesser known, you know. Yeah, yeah. Repertoire, and then all of a sudden there was a problem with the visa with um, with um, Joaquin Clerch visa, and he asked me, "Oh, I will need you to play a, a, a full recital," which at the end oh, was not a problem because uh, the visa got resolved. Uh, Romney actually Romney in, in Massachusetts he actually he plays a little guitar I don't know if you know about that and he knows Elliot uh, Elliot reached him about the possibility of having the visa approved for, for Joaquin Clerch to come and play the Boston Guitar Fest and at the end it worked out so at the end I end up only doing half a program but, oh phew <laughs> yeah exactly but but um, I had to to learn all this repertoire and do research about 18th 19th century uh, piano repertoire and, and because the guitar was much more rasgueados and popular music it was not so we ended up doing like, uh, arrangements and taking some prior arrangements by other composers by uh, Jesus Ortega and like, other even Brower himself and then making it closer to the piano uh, idea again with the concept of okay what do we have to add what does it add to, to this repertoire you know and in, in, in this sense, it worked out fine because it's, uh, the, these Cuban dances from the uh, 19th century, they are pretty much like almost Escalati, Escalatiesque sonatas, which is binary, yeah. binary form, pretty much, you know, very simple tonic dominant second session or the minor, major, uh, uh, and, and very light in texture. So they worked for the guitar fairly well. And it's music that it was seldomly played. And then all the music from the 1960s, 1970s by non-classical guitarists that, that got a wrench and played into that CD. And then I, I realized, you know, Morel, and he told me, like, there's one thing that is an arrangement and another thing that is a, a transcription. And how you meet those and marriage those two concepts 
so it still works well for the guitar. And it's, it needs to feel that it was written for the instrument. That's the ultimate goal. So yeah. I, I tried to, to do that as best as I could with the arabesque, as well as many other things that I had done. Um, the, the problem with it is like when, I, when you're young, you just want to put, oh, no, I need to put as many notes as I can in there to make it, you know, I want it to be as close to the original as possible. But then at some point, it's, it's, it's harming the performance of it because one thing is the concept and another thing is the reality. Yeah. So it's not so easy to um, to separate those two when you're young, you know. Yeah. I remember. Sorry, I, to find I, the balance. Yeah, I remember playing, uh, learning Castanova Tedesco, you know, concerto, and then I I wanted to do exactly everything as written, which it, you know it made it, it makes things a little tougher, I should say. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, I can but, then, but then you start thinking about it, it's like okay yes all this is good and. Even playable, you you can do it with all the notes, but is it worth it? Is it like it's because at the end it makes it a little heavier in character, and and many of the things change a little bit just for the sake, you know. So it's a give and take. Uh, The older I get, (laughs) the more I feel that it needs to be functional. Thank you, Rene, for being on the show. Please join me in two weeks for a conversation with another great guitarist. Going to leave the episode today with another recording. This is a killer piece by Renee's friend and composer mentioned earlier in our conversation, Carlos Rafaela Rivera. This is the third movement of Whirler of the Dance, which was a GFA competition commission piece and also dedicated to Renee. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tomes Classical Guitar Podcast. Mm-hmm.